IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss new albums by Lana Del Rey and Boy Genius. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He wants Ed Sheeran to know that music critics matter. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? In a very dark place, imagining some 48-year-old EMP music critic making a t-shirt like (laughs) Ethereal Lives Matter or Angular Lives Matter or something like that. (laughs) <laughs> like clapping back clapping back at Ed Sheeran in the most like cornball music critic way possible to show like solidarity you know like cuz who are who are, what are what what is the music critic community except like a notoriously solid uh front yeah so there was an interview this week that Rolling Stone did with Ed Sheeran and one of the poll quotes was he was talking about how music critics don't matter in the age of streaming because you can just listen to anything you want and make up your own mind. You don't need these pencil pushing, <laughs> uh, poindexters dictating to you what you like. And, uh, there was a reaction from the music critic community. Of course, they're not pleased with this. Cause you know, we're under siege anyway, Yeah, you know, publications, websites falling left and right. You know, it's hard to find a job these days. And now you have one of the most streamed artists in the world taking shots. Um, I have to say that uh, if I were Ed Sheeran, I would feel the exact same yeah. way. Because his career is evidence of the irrelevance of music critics. Because if music critics really mattered, Ed Sheeran would not have a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, he is one of the most streamed artists in the world. Is he the most? I mean, he I know he's like in the top is. five. He's, he, he might be. I think I saw something like the, that The weekend might be. But either way, like, yeah, music critics like don't matter to Ed Sheeran. And something like this is just such a dull, predictable punching down. Like, I, I, in order for some story like this to have, like, real spice for me, it needs to be like a pop artist such as a Caroline Polachek or like Phoebe Bridger saying that critics are irrelevant. Like just something that, you know, like causes music writers head to burst like scanners as they try to figure out like, Oh my God, do I clap back at this artist or do I, you know, continue to genuflect to them? I mean, I made a joke about it when I saw, I said that I'm going to tell my kids that Ed Sheeran doesn't want them to eat. Mm-hmm. That was my joke. Uh, that was a joke, yeah. though. I'm, I'm not actually offended. Yeah, neither am I. That Ed Sheeran doesn't like music critics. I will say that I do think that without music critics, there would be no hashing of trends None. out there. So I think in that respect, in the trend hashing <laughs> industry, music critics do provide value for the public. Other than that, you know, who knows? Yeah. But again, like, what is anyone worth in this world? <laughs> like, 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 what, like, what do, what do, like, any of us do really that at the end of the day matters? You know, <laughs> some of you listening, you may be a teacher. Okay, you matter. Maybe you're a firefighter. You matter. Most of us, we're just, uh, you know, trafficking and bullshit. You know, it doesn't really matter. 
<laughs> it's that life or death stuff. But, you know, the bullshit puts money in our pocket, you know, and I I'm I'm a huge purveyor of bullshit. I've I feed my kids with music critic money. I I own a house bought with music critic money. And I just don't want Ed Sheeran to mess with that. Ed, just give me this, okay? <laughs> you're you're a rich man. Uh I'm sorry critics haven't been nice to you. By the way, I was on a flight last week and uh Delta Airlines, they they play like the same songs mm-hmm. when you're on the runway. So there was an Ed Sheeran song. There's like an acoustic version of it, which was awful. Yeah, aren't, aren't all of his songs like an acoustic version of it? Again, like I'm just. But it said, but I shazammed it. Ah. So I was like, what the, f- what, what is this song? This is awful. And it said the song title, which I can't remember. I could actually go into my phone, I guess, and see what the last thing I shazammed was. It had the title and it had acoustic in parentheses. So I ah. assume. It's like if if the original Ed Sheeran song was too hard for you, <laughs> this is like the more soft, palatable version. Um, but there was another song that was played constantly that was even worse than Ed Sheeran. It's the One Republic song that's on the Top Gun Maverick soundtrack. Oh, I, do, you, do you know this song? I, I watched Top Gun Maverick actually this past Saturday, and um, you know, shout to shout to what is supposed to be Coronado in San Diego, but. Um, now I'm only familiar with like the Lady Gaga song from that movie, and also the replications of like you know Danger Zone. So the Ed Sheeran song was Shivers. Got it. Uh, Not to be confused with the Coldplay song Shiver, which is much better. Yeah, no, no, which sounds like Slayer compared to the <laughs> Ed Sheeran song. Um, the One Republic song is called "I Ain't Worried." Oh. Which, uh, that, that seems the, to cut, I mean, I think that seems to cut against, uh, Top Gun Maverick, but I mean, you know, the whole plot line of it. I think it's, I think it plays during, like, when they play football on the beach, oh. that scene. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, because the song, yeah, it's called I Ain't Worried. Okay. That is a carefree so, part of this thing. Man, I, exactly, I love but, how you brought up <laughs> Top Gun Maverick, because it's like, you know, dr- like, air, like, Air Force pilots and music critics. We're all like we're both in the same we're both in the same plane, like facing down obsolescence, you know, until uh they get, you know, whatever the equivalent of Top Gun taking out some nameless, you know, plutonium factory is. Like we just get one last big score before we ride off into the sunset. Yeah, and then it's back to the beach <laughs> playing football. Yeah. To this horrible One Republic song. I I I'm telling you Listeners, look up I Ain't Worried by One Republic. This is an awful song, and I had to hear it probably a half dozen times last week. It was rough. Um, so we have to talk about, um, you know, because we, we joke sometimes about how we manifest things on this show. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't recall us ever talking about Smashing Pumpkins touring with Stone Temple Pilots and Interpol. <laughs> Have we ever talked about that even as a joke? I don't think so, no, but, but I, I, apparently it's happening. Yeah, I've been practicing doing range life in a Paul Banks voice. Um, you know, I've lost my nerve and I won't do it, but this is not the first time uh, Smashing Pumpkins and Interpol have toured together. Um, I don't think we talked about the uh, the World is a Vampire show in Mexico City that happened this month. That was like a joint... Uh, it was like a joint festival with a couple of wrestling associations. Are you, did, did you see this? No, I missed this. I, I'm pretty sure it's like a psyop. I'm, I cannot confirm that this thing actually happened, but 
the lineup involve uh, at the top Smashing Pumpkins and Interpol, like two bands that may actually be bigger in Mexico than they are in America these days. Also, Turnstile and Death Heaven and Peter Hook were on the bill. Um, and, wow. And it was two wrestling federations, NWA and uh, AAA, that had apparently never met before. It looked fucking awesome. Like, shout so, like, to Billy were, Corgan. Were people wrestling? What's that? Were people wrestling during, like, were there, like, wrestling matches going on during the show? You see, I can't confirm, like, I can't confirm that one way or the other. My impression is that some of it is music and some of it was wrestling. I mean, wow. if, if if people could, I don't know, do a cage match to a bullet, bullet with butterfly wings, that would be, like, so, man, that 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 would be extremely meta and awesome but i don't think that's what went down i can't seem to find footage of this thing i still think it's you know, a deep fake i think a good wrestling duo would be obstacle one and obstacle two <laughs> like if you had wrestlers named obstacle one and obstacle two i think that could be kind of badass um but I, I feel like we're burying the lead here which is that smashing pumpkins and stone temple pilots are touring together as you alluded it uh conjures the song range life by pavement the song where Stephen Malkmus famously disses both of these bands, and not even in Stephen Malkmus's wildest dreams in 1994 could he have imagined that these bands would eventually tour together. Although I'm curious with STP, what the status is of like their lead singer situation. Yeah, I don't know that I, one because obviously Scott Weiland tragically passed away in, in 2015 he was already fired from the band when he right. died and then a few years after that chester bennington uh you know another just horrible tragedy takes his own life mm-hmm. i think that was 2017 uh so just like a sad situation in this band with, with singers mm-hmm. and i know i interviewed the deleo brothers i think in 20 17 or 18 something like that when they were doing like a cattle call for for singers like just saying hey send us a video uh and you know you could audition for this uh huge 90s band i mean they obviously have a singer now i but the guy's name is jeff gut and he looks a lot like Wyland. It's not like, you know, it's not like uh, Alice in Chains where, you know, it's very clearly not Lane Staley and Alice in Chains like new Alice in Chains. They play that they play that band a lot at the 24-hour fitness I go to. Um as well as like the new uh Red Hot Chili Peppers songs. That doesn't seem like good workout music to me. Well, I, Alice in Chains, I don't know. I I I just feel like I want to <laughs> you know, sit on a couch, crawl into a hole and die, in a fetal position. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, although I don't know. I guess Man in the Box. Yeah, you know that would I, I can get you going. Wood, wood's yeah, good. That's a good one. Um, them bones. I mean, you could you the, could do it, but like this, for whatever reason, this 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 gym plays like a lot of um, like Alter Bridge. Um, just like oh, all yeah. these bands that are still making music that you're like, oh, oh look at that. They play a lot of slightly stupid as well. You know, you gotta you gotta pander to uh, the San Diego audience. <laughs> oh man, I wonder what you know if you had like a like a map of where people are streaming 
slightly stupid. <laughs> is it just like a huge red dot in San Diego and then like nothing anywhere else? Uh, or are, are, are they big elsewhere in California? I, I had never heard of this band until I moved to San Diego. <laughs> so I was aware of them because in another life, I was a, uh, a city editor for an alt weekly and I'd have to put together the calendar. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this was in Milwaukee. And I feel like slightly stupid would, uh, you know, periodically come to Milwaukee. So I guess there's some streaming dots in Milwaukee for Slightly Stupid. But yeah. Th- San Diego is the obvious stronghold. Milwaukee's like a satellite stronghold <laughs> for Slightly Stupid. Yeah. Um, and again, they're like a sublime ripoff, right? Uh, I, I think so. Like, I... I you know, more reggae Yeah, maybe? I think they're... I think they got like kind of more of like a reggae vibe going on. Um, you know, compared to... Like, they are extremely San Diego, like, to the point where P.O.D. is basically the Strokes. You know what I mean? <laughs> is P.O.D. still doing it? Are they, yeah, are they I, I feel like they are. Okay. Like, I feel like every now and again you'll, like, see, hey, before the, tonight's Padres game and we have a Fernando Tatis Jr. bobblehead, come catch P.O.D. at the Gallagher Square at Petco Park. Uh, I may be making this up, but if, if I'm, like, I'm not that far off. So POD, <laughs> don't don't tell me. Is that short for? Is it profits of destruction? Something like that. I think it's payable on death. But oh, that's it. Okay, because they had like a Christian vibe. Oh, right? extremely Christian vibe. Right. Yeah. Shout out to Satellite. Right. That had some bangers. I like the song they did with Eka Mouse. That was a good song. <laughs> oh my god, I have nothing to contribute to that conversation. <laughs> I, I I I don't know any POD. You have um, to know Boom. I do. Here comes the Boom. <laughs> I, I mean, come on, man. Like, I mean, don't front here. If you played it for me, I might remember it, but I can't. I can't. Con- Youth that, that of the Nation. Yeah, nothing. Oh man, nothing. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was avoiding that music actively at the time. Now I would investigate it out of curiosity, but at, like in two thousand two, I was. Uh, you know, avoiding that religiously. Um, I have to ask you okay. about the hold steady. The hold steady. But I want to talk about POD. Well, <laughs> okay. We'll have to devote a. We'll do a POD episode slash slightly stupid. We'll we'll dive into the San Diego music scene. Actually, Stone Temple Pilots, another yep. San Diego band. Um, I want to talk to you about the hold steady because they have a new album out today. There's a lot of albums out today. Mm. Uh, and we're not going to even cover all the significant records that are coming out today. Like you wrote about the new pornographers; they have a new album out. I did. Um, we're not going to talk about that, though. I don't think. Yeah, I, I think we can talk about them vis-a-vis Boy Genius and uh, you know, super groups in general. But uh, yeah, yeah, we're if we really wanted to get forty-something critic with it, we would dedicate this entire episode to the Hold Steady and uh, new pornographers. Just getting really two thousand five with it. Well, you know, I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the hold steady because I feel like our positions on this band are relatively established and clear mm-hmm. and we just be reiterating opinions that our audience probably already knows, which is that I like the hold steady and you do not like the hold steady. And I am slightly curious if you've heard this new album and if you have any opinions on it. It's called The Price of Progress, by the way, because this is like part of this era of the band where they've been working with 
Josh Kaufman, who you may know from uh, the folk rock band Bonnie Light Horseman, oh, yeah. like good band. Uh, but he also does a lot of production work, and he's worked uh, with the Hold Steady before. He really got into the band's orbit because he was working with Craig Finn on his solo records. And what Kaufman has essentially done is help to broaden the sonic uh, palette of this band. You know, the Hold Steady, of course, known as like a, a bar band, heavy guitar riffs, uh, you know, Franz Nicolay's piano, uh, this kind of Springsteen Seeger type vibe. And on this new album, you can hear them moving away from that a little bit. There are uh, synthesizers, there's like organ, there's like electric keyboards. Uh, it's a more sort of diverse musical uh, tableau, if you will. Although, at the same time, there are lyrics that reference Robert Plant and LeBron James mm. and, you know, typical like, <laughs> hold steady stuff. And I'm a fan of this record. I, I'm actually kind of amazed at how... This band, it seemed like they were essentially left for dead in the mid-2010s. They went on this long hiatus. And then at the end of the 2010s, they end up coming back and they've put out, uh, I think this is the third record that they've put out since uh, resuming activity. And I think they've all been like strong records. I, I feel like they've had like a strong second act. Uh, along with, I think, Craig Finn really finding his footing as a solo artist and putting out, I think, some some quite good albums. So I'm just wondering, like, have you have you changed your mind at all about this band as they've matured, or are you still in the same boat? I mean, I, I'm I, I'm got to respect how they right now seem like the kind of band that they always wanted to be from the beginning, which is just putting out records cult band not really getting caught up in any sort of like broader narrative and i just <laughs> i just got to point out the fact that like if you look up josh kaufman online the first person you're going to see is a guy who won season six of the voice um as a member of usher's team so yeah not that josh kaufman um but yeah i mean I i'm like interested in the possibility of being like a just a, a total contrarians like yeah i like the hold steady but only the late period hold steady <laughs> like no man this right. this stuff is like it, it, it as good if not better than separation sunday or what have you but you know what, what i'm interested in kind of seeing with the hold steady now is uh you know with the wednesday album coming out next week we're seeing a uh if not like a reassessment, maybe a reappreciation of Drive-By Truckers, a band that has a pretty similar career arc to the Hold Steady. I mean, is there is there like a possibility of this band like kind of taking uh, a, a central part of the conversation uh, similar to similar to that? I mean, is there like a young band that that you can imagine coming up and doing? I don't know, maybe a like just what the whole steady are doing, but like just slightly different in a way that seems a little more uh zoomer. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I like how we're pivoting to the drive by truckers here a little bit. You know, we're hitting all of like my wheelhouse bands here. Um, what's interesting with the Wednesday uh, situation is that there's a clear influence that drive by truckers have on that band, but they're taking it in a different direction. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, fronted by a woman and it has like a woman perspective it isn't like guys in plaid shirts and beards which uh from a critical perspective is probably the last thing that will ever get like laudatory reviews uh in this uh environment so yeah i think with a band like the old steady 
if there were if there was a like a female Craig Finn, you know, who could sing, who could who could address the type of stuff that he addresses, but from like a female perspective, I think that would be something a lot of critics would respond to, um, as opposed to someone maybe doing it in a more straightforward. Kind of yeah, because I mean the whole steady. They, if they if they just decided to like say fuck it and play fest amongst like a lot of those like dudes rock bands like you know Spanish love songs or whatever that like clearly love them. Yeah, they would kill it. But um, yeah, I do think that there's sort. I do think there's room for a take on like what the whole steady do. And you know maybe you could argue that dry cleaning sort of do that. But uh, that's 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 a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it would be interesting to hear a dry cleaning record that had like Jimmy Page style <laughs> guitar riffs on it. I might, I might fuck with that. That might be the next iteration of that band. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing in. We uh, are always happy to hear from our listeners. We we got a lot of emails actually in the, in the past week, including letters from people who were unhappy about us. I don't say we. I don't think we trashed South by Southwest, but like we were sort of like meh on South by Southwest, and we did get some emails from people saying that they had a great time there, uh, which I totally believe. You know, because there's a ton of music there. A lot of it is inexpensive or or free, uh, so it's a good time. Don't want to rain on anyone's parade, and just want to acknowledge that we hear you, South by Southwest fans. Um, yeah, and if South by Southwest wants to fly us out and set us up in a hotel and have us do a, like a show on location, we're totally open to that too. So don't take our right. opinions on South by Southwest as you know, a vector of the music industry as our full opinion on it. We are very open to uh, getting on a plane and selling out. Yeah, if Doritos wants to fly us out there and set us up in the tur- in the Dorito tent. Uh, I don't know if they still have that. Like, I remember when I was at South by Southwest, they had, like, these inflatable, like, gargantuan-sized bags of Doritos. Oh, yeah. And that, because it, because I feel like Doritos sell themselves. I don't know why you have to promote Doritos at South by, at South by Southwest, but these were very hip Doritos. <laughs> uh, you know, these were indie rock Doritos. Um, do you want to read our letter here this week? I do. So... This mailbag comes from, appropriately enough, Math in Austin, Texas. So, Oh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, hi, Steve and Ian. This is sort of related to Steve's recent debut albums list. Stealing a rare great Twitter prompt, that's all caps, great Twitter prompt, from uh, Jesse Brenneman on Twitter for this one. What is the greatest sophomore album? Not the greatest album that happens to be an artist's second, but the greatest sophomore album. My vote is for Block Parties, A Weekend in the City. It has the two most important sophomore albums components. First, it's something of a sonic departure from their excellent debut, Silent Alarm. Second, it's not as good as the debut, which almost makes it which almost makes it all the more beloved by the fans of the band who wanted it to be. To expound on the second point, I bought Weekend in the City on release, had been eagerly rela- awaiting the follow-up Silent Alarm, and was a little sad I didn't love it as much. But I felt compelled to defend it from the less glowing reviews it received. Having paid money for it, one of the later albums might have People might have done that for. I listened to it a ton to the point of carving out a soft spot for it. So curious to hear your thoughts. Best math, Austin, TX. Okay. 
There could not be a more egregious <laughs> ass kissing email for Ian than this one. Yeah, not a burner. Dropping, not a burner account. We're dropping another block party reference. This is like how many weeks in a row? Have, <laughs> I guess maybe just two weeks yeah. in a row. But it feels like more than that because we you brought up Silent Alarm last week in the context of my debut albums column. I didn't put Silent Alarm on the list. Uh, now it comes up again, and now we're talking about the second yeah. block party album. Is there a third one? Oh, absolutely. Or it's it? called Intimacy. I reviewed it. It's not very good. Okay. Um, I have to say, I don't really understand Maff's uh, criteria here. for Because he's making a, a distinction between second album and sophomore album. Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, he's saying that a great sophomore album should be worse than the debut. <laughs> is, is that the criteria here? I don't really understand. It's a criteria. What he, what he means. A criterion. <laughs> Um, of that. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't really understand what he means. I'm going to set that aside. I feel like the obvious answer here, and it's boring, but I can't think of a better example is Nevermind. Oh yeah. Nirvana. <laughs> I mean, Bleach, it's a fine debut, Yeah. but like, if we're talking about leveling up, like Nevermind seems like the ultimate example of a band who's like a like a good band, and then they just make a record where like every song is perfect, where it just sounds like a greatest hits album, and it makes them one of like the biggest bands of all time. I, you know, I I don't know what else you would say for that. I mean, there are other examples that might be second to that. Like, and let me see if I can interest you in any of these <laughs> albums. The Benz, yeah, that's the by Radiohead. That's the obvious one for me because I think that I like that as a choice because, like, the first album. I know we have like a soft spot for Pablo Honey, but that's the example of a band that just completely like it, they build off a popular first record, but also just completely change the view of them. At like you know, like y- y- it's hard to imagine them getting. It, it, to OK Computer without the bends. And I think that's why it's valued just as much for like what it led to as, you know, what it actually is. I'd still give the edge to Nevermind because it's Nevermind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, considered one of the greatest albums of all time. Again, it's a boring choice, but but yeah, the bends obviously a strong choice. Can I interest you in Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins? That one to me is a little, I think, a, maybe like a better choice than Nevermind because, you know, Bleach is... I don't know how big quote unquote Nirvana was at that time, but I, I like the idea that the, it should be following a popular first record where there's like real expectations. Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. Can Another, I interest yeah. you in that record? <laughs> Coming after License to Ill, which I, I I feel like that's st- still my favorite Beastie Boys album, but Paul's Boutique obviously uh, totally reinvents them. Yeah. Much more sophisticated record. Um, the Low End Theory, Tribe Called Quest, good, good song. Couple of record. underdog uh, records we're talking about here. Do Little by the Pixies. Van Morrison's Astro Weeks. That's only his second I album. You? That's a second huh. record. I thought it was like his twelfth uh, or something like that. No, like I, I thought that was like back in the '60s, where you know you make like twelve albums before one actually hits. Well, no. Huh. Well, I, he had he was in a band called Them, and he had some weird record contract things going on but that's considered a second record um i mean if if i was gonna go the math route here our friend in austin because he's going with a record that isn't like a canonical 
sophomore record, but it's he has like a soft spot for yeah. it. Uh, I'll go Recovering the Satellites by, by Counting Crows. The IndyCast Hall of Famer. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. That would be like my weekend in the city type choice. It's actually a very... I, I do like that one. It's kind of like the darker, edgier Counting Crows. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good choice. I, I think we also have to point out that in the original prompt by Jesse Brenneman, he brings up Pinkerton uh, by Weezer as the quintessential sophomore album. So if if we're taking that as the metric of an album that like builds on expectations by just going a completely different route, then I think MGMT's Congratulations has to be considered. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, if we're taking more contemporary, uh, I mean, there are just so many ways to talk about like what makes a sophomore or a second record great you know because there are the you know pablo honey to the Benz type leaps like deaf heaven sunbather or you know the hotel years and home like no place is there are you know an album that i often call my favorite of all time jimmy world's clarity which is sort of you know like a bleach or a siamese dream kind of building off a you know not a good but like in retrospect not totally great uh debut i mean we could also good kid mad city and blonde sort of kind of count like because then do you consider like mixtapes to be a part of it um but you know for math point look if we're gonna like be on math's territory i don't think weekend in the city is as great of a sophomore sophomore album as it's uh partner in crime uh some Loud Thunder by Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. <laughs> One of the greatest sophomore album beginnings of recent memory where they just put the most completely shitty recording at the top, scaring off the squares. And I think it's actually a more interesting one than the beginning. But, you know, this one is just so hard to... It's it's it, On some level, it's a lot easier because, you know, we've named some of the best albums ever made. But... A debut, you kind of know what you mean by a debut. There's something like magical about that, that it makes it easier to put into a list than sophomore albums. Because there's a lot of ways you can make a great sophomore album. But I think that a debut, you know, for your sake, Steve, it was probably a lot easier to make a best debut albums list than a best sophomore albums one. Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, if you were going to do a sophomore albums list... Like I would weight it towards albums where the second album is clearly better than the first mm. and maybe the best album that the artist made. You know, it's one thing you you make a great debut and then like your second album's great. Well, it's like, well, okay, it's a great sophomore album, but it doesn't seem as significant again as a record like Nevermind or The Benz right. where they are clearly leveling up, you know, so I would weight it that way. In which case, the weekend in the city might not be the best example. But you know, Math, you do you. Yeah, you love Block Party. We keep talking about Block Party on the show. We'll find a way. What was the name of the third record? Intimacy. We'll probably talk about. We'll talk about intimacy next week. We'll find some excuse. Actually, you to, know what? What we're gonna. I think we actually talked about not last episode, but quite recently, like indie rock's remix albums, which Silent Alarm remix might be the best one ever made. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what like what else would even be in the running? I can't think of other remix albums in the indie rock realm. Uh, either way, Block Party. <laughs> I, I I keep hearing them, and also we talked about with like Paramore, you know, bringing them on tour. Like this is these, these are great times for uh, 
block party lifers such as myself, you know, maybe not so much for like the actual people in the band, especially Kelly, who seems to really, really dislike his his uh, old albums nowadays. But you know what? We we all got to pay the bill somehow. All right, let's get to the meat of our episode. And uh, we missed the half hour guarantee, unfortunately. Got too busy talking about slightly stupid there. Yeah, no, I'm not making any guarantees when the subject matter switches to POD. Yeah, you. I, I think we we officially went over when you kept throwing out POD song titles, thinking that I would recognize one, <laughs> and, I, and there wasn't one. That could have went on for another ten minutes. I feel like, uh, but anyway, here we are at the meet. And uh, first album we're going to talk about is the latest from Lana Del Rey. The record is called Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? This record came out last week. This is the ninth Lana Del Rey record. And even before we talk about this record, I just want to reflect on that a little bit because I think I'm at the age now, like we're 2012, uh, seems easier to remember than like last week, you know, like I can remember 2012 vividly, but like what I had for dinner last night is completely wiped from my memory banks. (laughs) So it doesn't feel like Lana Del Rey has been around long enough to have nine records. And by the way, I'm not counting the spoken word album she put out in 2020, uh, just studio musical albums. This is her ninth. Uh, so she like has this big body of work here. Am I insane here? Isn't it? I mean, I didn't even say this with the Hold Steady. You know, this is the this is their twentieth anniversary. The Hold Steady. Mm-hmm. That's insane to me. That something that meant a lot to me in my twenties and early thirties is now multiple decades old. Uh, but I don't know. Are, are you at all surprised that like we're that we have this much Lana Del Rey content at this point. You sound very ill-suited to the remember some guy's lifestyle. If you can, <laughs> well, I, can I don't know if you're guys. built for this. I'm shit. just saying, <laughs> no, I, what I'm saying is that I can remember the guys. Cause the past seems more vivid to me than like the recent. Oh, past. absolutely. That, that part is definitely true. And I've talked about this many, many a time where, uh, when you're celebrating a tent, like the longest period of time, uh, in the past is like four years ago because you know the recent past can be pretty easy to grasp and also when by the time the 10th anniversary or a 20th anniversary comes around you've had enough time to kind of process things and you know get a sense of like where things stand in the greater context but like 2018 uh I, I can't I can't grasp that year for the life of me you know I have vague yeah. memories of like you know, resistance, core, and, you know, like all sorts of like Shits Creek merchandise in the stores. But other, oh, otherwise, man. you're absolutely correct. And, you know, like with, with Lana Del Rey, I mean, I do think that we are at a point. I, I think this album really drove it home for me. Like you said, it's her ninth album where, you know, this is obviously still a big deal record, but it's not. A, at the center of discussion, if that makes any sense. Like, I think the days of her putting out candidates for maybe album of the year are gone in the same way that, like, you would say the same for, I don't know, The Weeknd or, like, Tyler, the creator. Like, this is, like, the these are, like, the legacy acts. Like, the people who had uh, an Odd Future poster or a Born Die poster in their dorms 
or a blonde poster in their dorm for Frank Ocean. Like these are the people like guiding the discussion right now. Like these are the legacy acts. And um, I mean, in the same way that I'm impressed by the whole steady building such a body of work, I'm kind of like, this is a huge catalog that if I ever get like uh, a, on a whim, I just might deep dive into it because one of the things that stands out about this album, like, uh, you know, to, 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 to contradict Ed Sheeran, I've actually gotten a lot out of the people writing about this record, talking about just how much lore there is stuff that I completely miss because I am not at all a Lana head. Yeah. You know, the thing I found myself appreciating, uh, during this record is how Lana Del Rey really is like one of the last old fashioned rock stars in the sense that she doesn't seem at all interested in, a, in being normal. Yeah. You know, even when she like <laughs> presents herself as normal, it never really feels normal, you know? And I don't think that she's interested in being like relatable or, you know, showing some sort of like human side to what she does. She is just like this persona and this iconic uh, type figure. And, you know, maybe we'll revisit this when we get to the Boy Genius uh, album, because that's clearly a different generation of, of rock and pop stars where it does feel more about, okay, I connect with this artist as a person right. like i i understand or i feel like i understand who they are with lana del rey i don't think there is anything like that she's sort of like you know uh like an axel rose type person you know like <laughs> where axel rose obviously writes about himself but he's like larger than life in a way that like you, you don't you can't really think of him as like just a as a dude <laughs> and i really appreciate that about lana del rey and i will say i think this record is a mini comeback for her after uh, the two post-Norman fucking Rockwell albums, uh, Chemtrails Over the Country Club and Blue Bannisters, which I wasn't a huge fan of either of those albums. They feel, I think, like hangover records Mm. from this triumph that was Norman fucking Rockwell, huge critical hit. I think people look at that now as like her defining statement. Mm. Although, having recently written that debut albums column, I, I have to give props to born to die as just like a record where she totally nailed the Lana Del Rey-ness of Lana Del Rey, like immediately. And just the audaciousness of that record. I give a lot of credit to it, uh, to that album in, in retrospect. Um, I got to say though, I really wish Lana Del Rey would hire a drummer. Uh, there's so little drums Mm. on this record because this record I mean, we haven't even gotten, I think, to the length of this album. This is a long album. I think it's like 77 minutes. I've done some math, and I, I, if you play this album side by side with the entire Joyce Manor catalog, by the time you finish the fourth Joyce Manor album, Cody, you might get you're just at the song where she raps. So this album, I believe, is like 80 <laughs> minutes long. Um, which, you know, on some level it's like, whatever it's streaming, you're supposed to take it piece by piece. But you know, the Friday morning, it actually came out. I would see people, God bless these people who just show so much dedication. They're saying, yeah, I'm three, I'm three listens in and you know, I'm only beginning to crack the code here. I just, I'm fascinated by people who have that kind of time, 
you know, to like yeah, to get I, real intentional listening to it. I'm I'm a kind of envious. I think it's for me. I mean, that would be my criticism of it is that this album I think is at least twenty minutes too long. Yeah, and because how and because like rhythmically, there's not much going on on this record. It's very stately, beautiful music that again has no real rhythm tracks to it, with some exceptions. Um, you know, it it makes those eighty minutes like feel a little bit longer than eighty minutes. Um, but this, uh, I do think that the high points of this record, I would put with anything in our catalog. I, I, I think I've talked about this before, but the single A and W, I song. think, is like a, a great song. Like that immediately brings to mind Norman fucking Rockwell. Mm-hmm. Like the the great songs from that record. Um, I really like the Father John Misty duet. You know, which is uh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, have they duetted before? I don't think so. I feel like they. I feel like they have. I. I, I mean, I, I. I do. It's. It's so obvious, like how much of a mirror they are for each other. Um, I think it's kind of weird when she brings on um, other artists to kind of like puncture, uh, to kind of like puncture the Lana Del Rey bubble. You know, like. Um, the like John Baptiste interlude. <laughs> I think the, the like when we talk about like how long this album is, I think we also have to point out the fact that the interludes are like four minutes long. <laughs> yeah, they're not interludes. I don't know why we're calling because she's calling Lana's, them interludes. <laughs> yeah, I know that's what I mean though. It's like Lana's pulling a fast one on us with that because she's like, no, the album's not that long. I have these interludes on there, but uh, Lana, these are like song length interludes. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the you know interludes are like a one minute long. Thing, that should be it um there's the song with bleachers too yeah. where like jack antonoff is doing this like not a fan i don't know what he's kind of like a leonard cohen type voice it's very odd um but again i don't know i i think with lana del rey with all of her records you have to be you have to buy into her as an idea mm-hmm. you know and if you're with her as an idea like you said, all the lore on this record, all the mythology, the self-mythology going on. Um, you know, it's, it's the same argument I would make for the doors. <laughs> if I could bring the doors in. I bet she would like that comparison. I'm sure, she, look, I have no doubt in my mind that she's a Jim Morrison fan. There's, there's no question that she loves Jim Morrison. It's a similar thing with, with him where if you appreciate what he's doing, and even the ridiculousness of what he's doing, especially the ridiculousness of what he's doing, especially then you're going to be on board and uh, with with what the Doors are doing. And I think Lana Del Rey has a similar thing, where again it's this larger than life, self mythologizing, uh, you know, myth making going on. Uh, and I really like that because I just feel like we don't get a lot of that, you know. And I like how she's not interested in being normal. <laughs> you know, we need more rock and pop stars like that i think yeah i i i i just do appreciate just how fucking weird like i don't think it could go without saying like how fucking weird this album is um and you know it's great because like we talked about filler on one of the previous episodes and boy this would be a great album to discuss it through because to me it's not the john baptiste interlude or it's not the rap song that's filler like it's just like the stuff in the middle that I sort of forget about. And like, I do, 
I don't know, maybe like one of these days, I'm just going to like take off music writing for a year and just go full on, like hold steady and Lana Del Rey, just like catching up on the lore outside the context of, you know, the way it's discussed online. You know, one album of hers that I like that I feel like is underrated is the uh, one that Dan Auerbach did with her, Ultraviolence. Oh, yeah. I think that's, I think that was the one right after Born to Die. I feel like that one doesn't get talked about a lot. That's when she was kind of doing this, like, Roots Rocky type. <laughs> with Dan Auerbach. you bring in Dan Auerbach, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get, like, the bluesy guitar riffs and stuff. And it had, like, that Roadhouse, Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh-huh vibe to it which um is a great feel for lana del rey and she hasn't really done that in that way since then so i don't know i'm gonna stump for ultra violence there for as a good lana del rey record um let's get to our next record and it's called the record and it's by boy genius and boy genius of course is the super group comprised of bb bridgers Lucy Dacus, and Julian Baker. Uh, You may remember they put out an EP in 2018, a six-song album, Uh, and then they went on to become big indie rock stars. You know, know, we're talking about remembering 2018. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously all three had careers at this point, uh, but they weren't as famous as they are now. I actually had all three of them on my old podcast. Jeez. Celebration Rock, which I don't think I could swing to. <laughs> no. I don't. I don't. I don't think they would come on an indie rock podcast uh, like they did back then. And uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, the difference between this album and that EP because, like, when that EP came out, it, it almost felt like a lark. Yeah. Between you know these three emerging singer songwriters coming together, they have a funny band name. Uh, they're posing like Crosby, Stills, and Nash on the cover of the record. It, you know, it had kind of a low-key charm to it. Whereas this album is like big indie personified. It's on Interscope, like this, isn't it? Is uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is like a superstar record. And um, you know, I reviewed this album for Uprocks, and my review was mixed. Mm. Maybe mixed to negative. Probably leaning a little more on the negative side. Although I like the record. I like parts of the record. I think like the first half of it is quite good. And that is the half that includes a lot of the singles that were released ahead of the record. Um, but I really feel like this album, it's another example of, you know, what happens I think in every supergroup where you have all of these great components that come together that in a way kind of cancel each other out. And it ends up being less interesting in a supergroup context than each of the parts are on their own. And that's the impression that I got. And I have to say that I feel a little bit lonely in that impression because <laughs> the reviews of this record have been very, very laudatory. Yeah. When I Googled the album, um, I didn't see anything less than this is a spectacular triumph other than my review. And it's funny because, like, on the Google search, like, the headline of my review was, on this album, Boy Genius doesn't add up to the sum of its parts. Mm. And then, like, the next story on Google News is, Boy Genius adds up to more than the sum <laughs> of its parts. So there's, like, a disagreement about the math. Google is the land record. of contrasts in summation. But I I don't know. I You know, 
there's something about this record that feels a little overblown to me and cliched. I think that some of the songs aren't that strong. And like there's one song in particular called We're, uh, We're in Love. Right. Where I feel like it's a blatant attempt to like make you cry. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a way that I don't feel like they do on their proper records. I, uh, there's a sort of intimacy to their albums that I think is lost here. And I don't know, it, it, it just feels forced at times to me. And, and I also feel like by having their songwriting styles overlap, it actually makes them feel less unique. I, 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 at some point, this album starts to feel a little repetitive to mm-hmm. me in terms of the lyrics um, in a way that I don't think is true on their individual albums. I don't, am I crazy here? Like, do you love this record too? Like, uh, or, or do I, you know, am I totally alone on the island of like being kind of ambivalent about Boy Genius at this point? Well, I'm looking it up right now, and it appears that Slant Magazine shares your mixed review, uh, as does Clash. Oh, Slant? Yes. Me and Slant? Okay. Yeah, you and Slant, you know, and, you're, you're on the island right there. Welcome to, and welcome to your island. <laughs> We're on Ambivalent Island with uh, Boy Genius. <laughs> we should say that the Pitchfork review hasn't gone up yet yeah. uh, when we've uh, recorded this, but it'll probably be up, I imagine, when this episode posts. So I'm curious to see where they fall. It almost seems like people love Boy Genius more than even like the individual album by the even more than the albums put up by the individual artists, which is crazy. Yeah, to me. that that's just because I, I that's that's the part that's bizarre to me because that implies that. Uh, they love this more than they love Phoebe Bridgers, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast a lot. Well, it's like, I mean, is this album better than Punisher? No. Is it better than Home Video? Is it better than Little Oblivions? I would say no by like a significant yeah. margin. I, I think that the most recent solo records by these artists uh, are more interesting, and they're, they're better showcases for what they do well on their own. Mm. Yeah, I, I think with this, and this kind of ties into what I'm going to talk about when uh, my piece on the Wednesday album comes up, is that uh, you can't underestimate the appeal of people publicly enacting friendship, especially after the past couple of years we have. Like, in the same way that like Wednesday seems like a really good hang and that kind of plays into the music, uh, a lot of the praise I've seen about this record is kind of a projection of you know how they feel about these three very talented artists you know operating like the name itself just kind of tips its hand as to well we're challenging this idea of supergroups and the competition of you know male genius and like the way you know female artists are fucking pit against each other like it's a force for good now that with this album, I gotta. Uh, this comparison like seems, seems super obvious to me in a way that it should have been all along. But um, in the same way, this album is being like praised to a degree, which I find almost like I don't know psychotic. I think about when I wrote a I wrote like a three thousand word nine point review for Run the Jewels two back in two thousand fourteen, wow. and. What? Let's try to remember that. Yeah. Let's let's go back to that Ian Cohen. Oh gosh, man! Like, uh, <laughs> oh man, that 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 review. I got in some trouble with that one, uh, and rightfully so. But um, yeah, it, I, I think about like Run the Jewels, like how you know I like the music, but it was just so awesome to see LP and Killer Mike, these artists that I already like, 
publicly enact this friendship of theirs, which just seems really legit and earnest. And I was about like, I was as high on that album as a lot of people seem to be on this one right now. And like from the moment, almost the moment I, that review published and I was done with it. I, I don't think I've listened to it since because a, the hype just kind of burnt me out on it and it just wouldn't fucking go away. Like I saw, I cannot, I cannot even fathom like how many times I saw run the jewels perform at festivals or what have you in LA at that time. And you know, to the point of like, it doesn't really go away. This, this album to me, I'm having so much trouble uh, expressing like what I actually mean with this, but it sounds so super right now that it almost seems kind of dated in a way. Um, when I hear some of the, I mean, it, it's a result of just the profound influence, like Phoebe, not just the sound of this band, but like also the writing style of Phoebe Bridgers, the writing style of Lucy Dacus, the writing style of Julian Baker has had on indie rock as a whole. Um, it almost feels like I've heard this sort of kind of, um, you know, I think about like the one line, like, uh, where I think it's Lucy Dacus who says like, you fuck around and find out, um, that like, I, I, I know what it's trying to do, and I just kind of reflexively cringe in the same way that I do when Succession throws its little uh, bone to the media people covering it by having like the hundreds uh, or the hundred on that episode. Um, yeah, you know, it's just so it it just feels like not pandering. I don't want to go that far, but it just seems like so in control of like its message that um, you know I kind of miss the relative unruliness of you know, they're solo albums in the same way that like, I never listen to run the jewels anymore, but I do go back sometimes to LP or killer Mike's early work. Um, and you know what, like again, though, I'm not 25, you know, I haven't come up with these artists. I wonder if I'm feeling right now the way, you know, like the older music critics, like who are really in the deer hoof and the boredoms felt when I, you know, when the national started to become hot shit, um, yeah, I, I guess this is just well, a cycle it, of life. But don't, I, I don't, I don't think that's true though, because again, it's not these artists individually. I like, I mean, I've been following them their whole career and I've written about them and I've had them on podcasts. I like these artists a lot. I just don't feel like this is the best showcase for them. And I do feel like, and you were hinting at this, I think there's like a memification that's happened mm-hmm. With Boy Genius, that I think just detracts from the music a bit. I I I I just don't feel like they are at their most interesting in this band. Mm-hmm. I don't think that these songs are like their best songs. Again, particularly in the second half, I think the record falls. Oh yeah, off. total. Like that uh, that 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 seems like unequivocally true. <laughs> yeah, and you know maybe it'd be different if this were just like another EP and it had like lower stakes attached to it. But um, I don't know. I just feel like the charm a little bit has been taken from this group. And I I, I just hope that they get back to making their own records, which I'm sure they will. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I'm disappointed by this. And it it pains me to say it because I do like all these artists individually and I like them being successful and having this platform. So... I say this with love that you don't need to make another Boy Genius album. You should go make your own records because I think that's where your work is best highlighted. I think. Yeah, and also, like, I feel we are not going to advance to a new era in indie rock until we get the next Phoebe Bridgers album. Because right now, 
I still think Punisher is, if not, it's it's definitely like maybe it's definitely the one of the if not the the definitive albums of you know the pandemic era. And her influence is just so widespread and unmistakable that I feel like we're just kind of in this holding pattern until we get like what comes next after Punisher. Yeah, and I would like to see how she advances from that because I do think that another thing about this record is that it does show some of the limitations of mm-hmm. maybe that sound and reiterating that sound. And like one thing I like about the Boy Genius record are like the like the the more rocking songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are these sort of like alt rock sounding stuff that I think changes. And that's something that Dacus and Baker have done on their solo records. And Bridgers hasn't really done that. She's done that like a little bit. But, you know, Punisher, if anything, was even like more insular than Stranger in the Alps. Uh, So I'll be curious to see if she maybe embraces that more sort of full-bodied sound on whatever she does next. Now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So uh, there's a new album from a band called Lies, uh, and the album itself is called Lies, except it's uh, lowercase, and it's a more of a synth pop sample-based project from Mike and Nate Kinsella, who are from a uh, you know a, a little emo concern called American Football that you might be aware of. I mean, I'm kind of contractually obligated to talk about this record. Um, I actually enjoy it a lot, though. I interviewed them for Up Rocks back in fe- February, and um, this is their debut, and it emerged from what was supposed to be American Football LP4. Uh, they were going to take things into a more kind of synth-based, a little kind of a weird territory. And just by the nature of the fact that American football consists of mostly dudes with real-life jobs, it didn't come to pass. So I do like the fact that Nate and Mike uh, got together and saw this one to fruition. Um, I honestly, and I know how this is going to sound, I kind of prefer where they go here rather than you know maybe making another american football album where they just kind of do the same thing uh i loved lp3 felt like it's run its course but um yeah it's just really cool to hear a lot of the same things that mike kinsella does on his solo records as owen um you know lyrically and guitar wise but just in a more uh vibrant sort of sound which is what nate kinsella has been doing for a long time with birthmark and also as a member of american football so um, yeah, just a new branch of the Kinsella tree. I'm on it. Lies. The album itself is called Lies. Good stuff. Not to be confused with GNR Lies. Or is it? You should hear their <laughs> one in a million cover. It's uh, nah, yeah. it's highly problematic. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to... Uh, yeah, what if I recommended GNR Lies? <laughs> that would be a good bit right now. Um, no, I want to talk about an Irish quartet called Lankham. And this is a band that I feel like is not Ian Cohen music superficially, but maybe I could persuade you into giving this band a chance because they're an Irish folk band, not very Ian Cohen like, <laughs> and maybe and not even really like my kind of music either. But they take these like traditional Irish songs and they take them in, uh, in like a post rock direction. Like I feel like I've seen this band described as like if the poke if the Pogues sounded like Suno, you know <laughs> that kind of thing where. 
you have the traditional element, but there's also this sort of deconstruction going on where it sounds, and I'm going to use this word, ethereal, ah. uh, as well as just kind of evil and sinister sounding. Like, uh, I don't know how to explain this, but there's something kind of metal about this band, even though there's like no metal music in it at all and that may have to do with the fact that on the album cover they look like a band that would be signed to like profound lore you know like it's beards and like furrowed brows and they look like intense people but this record uh it's and again it's called false lankum is the name of the album uh it's really grown on me uh since it came out uh last week uh again just really beautiful music but it has this kind of evil undertow to it i just imagine it like you know, being the kind of music that you would hear, like if someone decided decided to remake The Road, you know, that oh, Cormac yeah. McCarthy book. I, there's already a movie made out of it, but no one remembers the movie. But like <laughs> if someone, or like Blood Meridian, yeah. I think that hasn't been made. If someone finally made that into a movie, I feel like this band would be a good soundtrack for that. Because it just has this kind of post-apocalyptic feel to it. Wide open spaces, arid terrain, uh, where it sounds like, kind of timeless and undead <laughs> at the same time, if that makes sense. Uh, so again, the band is called Lankum. The record's called False Lankum. Uh, and I think it's a really cool record. Uh, and I, I could see it catching on, actually, with a lot of people. I think, it, I think it sort of has, because what it does is so unique. Now, as far as the album cover, I will challenge that it sounds like profound lore, because I can read the script on the front. To me, it looks more like a 4 AD circa 1993 uh, sort of thing because because of the color scheme or like even like a post grunge band like I would not be shocked if Live ever made a cover that sort of looked like that, um, but yeah, I listened to it just because I've seen it, it's the sort of album that like the people who are going to review it are going to rave about it just because it does something so new, unique and I think this kind of. Um, I like the instrumentals a lot when it gets into like the lyrics like I think that gets you know I, that kind of takes me out of it, but. Um, the parts that are instrumental remind me a bit of, and again, this is a canceled band. We need someone to fill this void of the parts of like recent Swans records where it's, it's not like metal per se, where it's like loud and abrasive, but it uses things like these old timey undead instruments to get this sense of dread across. So, um, yeah, I do like what this band's doing. I do think it's super interesting. I just love the idea of these like four people in Ireland getting together. It's like, Hey, we're going to make kind of a post Rocky folk, uh, band. Are you into this sort of thing? It's like, fuck. Yeah, we are. It all. It, and it's really popular in Ireland. Like apparently this band is competing with like the Lana Del Rey record for like the number one album. And I love that. I love, this reminds me of that time that like Mogwai put out a new record a few years ago and they like enlisted their fans to make it number one which you can do in a smaller country. I, I love when people do that. You know, there's a, there's a world too, like where my enjoyment of this album will help me get into the black country, new road. Album <laughs> because there, there, are, there is some shared DNA Absolutely. with this album and what black country, new road is doing. So stay tuned. Maybe <laughs> I'll uh, finally change my opinion on that band. Uh, Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week.
And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.